Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 248 of the ETPHD team podcast with myself and Anna. Hi Anna, how are you? Hello, I am good, thank you. How are you? I am also good, thank you. And Katie, how are you? I'm good, I'm really good, thank you. Where wasn't that you're on the podcast today? Very excited. Yeah. First podcast of, of the ETPHD podcast, many more to come. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how much wisdom I can share. <laughs> <laughs> You you have such wise energy, don't you think, Anna? Yeah, big time. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's such a nice compliment. Thank you. Yeah, so take it. I feel like you'll offer. It's so nice to have different perspectives too, like on stuff. Sometimes I feel like, especially especially me and you, Anna, I feel like sometimes we say the same, like we just have the same opinions. So then it's nice to have someone else on there. <laughs> just because, you know, we're always right. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's all it is. Okay. Anyone got anything exciting that they want to share before I start, we start with the questions? I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, but I think I've got a date for my house move. This is very exciting. It feels Hello. like you've done about eight podcast episodes where you're like, oh, I'm going to move house. Oh, no. No, still, still not going to move. And even my clients ask me on calls, they're like, oh, you're still still there. Like, yep. Yep. Still here. <laughs> still living in boxes. It's all good. It's it'll, be, it'll be such a good day when you get in your house. Can't wait. Although I miss, I've seen your um, reels where you do yoga and I really love the space. It's like the wooden ceilings or something. It's really nice. Yeah. To be fair, I am really going to miss this house. But I think, you know, because you've been waiting that long, I'm like, I'm so ready to be out of it at the same time. Mm -hmm. I love your house. I've never even been to it in real life. I just feel like I've been there because I feel like from calls and reels, like you said, Katie, I feel like I know it. And it's always Mm. very friendly. Well, I mean, it's you've seen the extent of it. It is just those those rooms. <laughs> well, they're, well, they're beautiful. So that's mm-hmm. great. Um, Katie, do you want to give a brief introduction of yourself? I'm putting you on the spot here, but I feel like yeah. it's helpful for people to kind of hear about who you are. Yeah, why not? I'll see. I'll keep it keep it a little bit concise because I could uh, waffle on telling my life story. But um, yeah, so I come to the ETA PhD team as a neurosomatic coach. So basically my interests are in sort of what our lived experience of our body is um, and then also in neuroscience. So I have an academic background and I have a degree in neuroscience and then my PhD, my interest kind of evolved and I started to look at health from the perspective of people's lived experiences. So say physiology more studies the body from an outsider objective experience or point of view and I was interested in it from like the inside point of view of like what is it like so my PhD was on dementia and what is it actually like to live with dementia Um, and then I've always been interested in health and fitness and I sort of saw this need in the coaching space of um, there was a need for a middle ground between the the brain hacks biohacking and you know drawing on evidence base but maybe a little bit too bro sciencey and then uh uh, you know another side of things that was to do with connecting to your intuition and listening to your body and but maybe lacking the scientific evidence so I kind of like to situate myself somewhere in the middle drawing on on both of those and yeah you can't take brain health out of the context of the environment that we live in and a large part of, part of that is our relationship with food and our bodies so that's how I came to be here we are very excited we feel I feel very lucky that you're on the team and um yeah I think I think when we had an initial conversation too from from my and we've obviously done some somatic work and it's part of ETHD work for a while to some degree right and so we understand the importance of it but then in the last year or so this kind of obsession with neuroscience I guess because of Huberman and his podcast and then you know lots of male podcasters following on from him talking about the importance of 
not having caffeine for 90 minutes when you wake up in the morning and then staring at the sun and then you know all of these men who have wives with children who look after their children whilst they go out and stare at the sun and see their eyeballs and don't drink their coffee for 90 minutes whilst their wife has had three coffees because she's looking after their four children and I've been very heteronormative here I'm just talking about this specific examples you know for me in the last year I've really noticed that I really have grown a hatred towards that and so you know when we've initially spoken I saw your background I was like oh this is exactly what we do need is like an actual sensible voice in this space and um, mm-hmm. so you are the sensible voice unlike my own to be honest so, <laughs> can't wait <laughs> um okay so okay we'll be on the podcast many times in the future so this is great great and where's your accent from because people will wonder it's a it's a bit of a hybrid it's a mid-atlantic accent i am was born in scotland and then i spent my first um 10 years living in the Middle East and I went to an international school so that was just a weird uh, foundation and then uh, I'm from Ireland I moved my dad is Irish so we moved to Ireland when I was about 10 lived here for 10 years and then I lived in Scotland my mum is Scottish and lived there for 10 years and now I'm back in Ireland so you if you I don't know what people lots of people hear different things I get Canadian quite a lot I think it depends on some words and who I'm with yeah um, but I, I was comforted when I heard like Holly who's also just joined the team uh the first time I spoke to her I was like hey you have a strange accent like me <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it I just love I love any everyone I think loves an accent that's not their own right mm-hmm. I think that's why I like America people just like me just for opening my voice opening my voice <laughs> opening my mouth. oh my gosh I need to get better with my words today um okay let's get cracking on the questions Anna do you want to go first Yes. Um, okay. Nice one to start. What are your favorite forms of mental rest? Clearly in- <laughs> Both looking so intently, like thinking faces hard. Clearly in need of mental rest. I think I think that's the thing. I you know when you just know it as well, like when the words are coming out that are not the right words um for me it depends on my environment usually it's just being out in nature in silence and for me that's really the best way to just kind of I say quote unquote switch off my mind but really not be thinking of and actively thinking about um something but then other times I feel like it, something really immersive can be really helpful so on the other day I spent four or five hours with my nieces and the moment of rest I actually felt really creative that night um partly because I had the fear because I'd taken four or five off uh, hours off work in the middle of the day and I was like panicking um so maybe it was fear and just creativity as well but um I find that obviously very very immersive and you know playing Peppa Pig for an hour is not exactly rejuvenating for me but it's it's definitely mental rest and um I just find anything that makes me not think about work actually not thinking about using my brain really helpful because I feel like you there's there's a line when I teach meditation um that I say relatively often and it's so simple of just like you know like you have nowhere else to be and nothing else to do right now and whenever I hear it as a as a student of a meditation teacher I find it unbelievably restful and un- like it's like oh my god what a gift for the next half an hour or hour it's like oh so anything that gives me that sense of feeling for me is, is solid mental rest yeah the, the only thing I would add is that when I feel like stressed or overwhelmed and when I need rest the the thing that works for me is just ask myself how do I reduce my inputs and so a lot of the time that is like okay I know you like to go for a walk and listen to your podcast but no podcast you know or no using your walk to catch up on voice notes I think there's like so much we're just receiving so much external stimulus all the time on our nervous systems and it's coming from ways that we don't even realize it so it's just thinking how can I really reduce those inputs down and that I find that quite I I get into quite a like restful state once I do that and sometimes maybe that looks like actually no you know what I've sat I sat with myself for a little bit and now I'm going to go watch Netflix but it's it's take trying to take that little pause 
before you do it because sometimes if you find yourself you're just watching Netflix and your phone is on and you know you're you're eating dinner and all these things are happening all at the same time it's just a lot of stimulus and, and won't it's like you could, there's different ways to watch Netflix you can watch it in a way where you, you get like you said Amelia quite immersed in it or you can be stimulated by a lot of different things and I don't personally I don't find that very restful so, so much agree <laughs> I was um I think I talked about this recently like having like a bit of a creative like block and obviously I was talking about like kind of I've been going and doing some painting but I think the if we think about kind of the different types of rest as that crossover and like you guys were saying having something immersive that just lets your brain switch off and I have to say I've been exploring Tesco craft aisle who knew they had one and they have some fantastic stuff so if you want to uh I recently found a little like embroidery wheel and I feel like I'm about 60 but I'm yeah having a, a fun time in the evenings with that <laughs> I'm really upset that I've not received any as a gift. I want a picture that's been painted that I can put in my fridge that's got your signature. <laughs> that would well, like, like that photo is coming up. Can't <laughs> wait. That's exactly what I would love. Please, thanks so much. Um, it, I also love a puzzle. I know Holly loves a puzzle. We were talking about this the other day. I love a puzzle. That's very immersive. I, we got we have one we were doing one before I came back from Austin and we were like oh this is probably another two settings and we we're like ah. we we're kind of 40 minutes in and before we even checked the time we we're like oh let's just keep going two hours two hours and we we're like oh my god we finished the, pu the puzzle and then I was like it was like 11 p.m like well that's that we're losers but also it's very immersive love a puzzle so yeah I'm not sure if that's creative or if it's just old person but either way love one um okay Katie do you want to go with the next question yeah um okay so this is from one of Becca's clients um it's, it's kind of similar how do they balance rest with a busy schedule and the propensity to binge during programmed rest are there some examples of restful activities oh great love when questions align like that universe yes. What was the first part? The, the finding the balance. How to balance rest with a busy schedule and the propensity to binge during programmed rest. Um, I, I would just reiterate my first point of busy schedule. That to me is like, okay, how can you reduce your inputs? Like you, it's okay to be busy. You're going to be busy. Um, what are the certain things that you can eliminate in, when you're in a busy period of your life? Um, yeah, I was talking to a client recently. <laughs> can't remember when. Like the, what was it the the four four burner analogy? And like if if one's like obviously on full boil, then the other three need to like be dialed down a little bit because you can only put all of your attention into one. Otherwise, they all go. It all goes chaotic. And like you were saying, just assessing what what you can dial down in that time but I from the way that that question is worded I would be mindful that you're not kind of talking yourself into a self-fulfilling prophecy and that every time I rest I'm going to binge and go okay well that here are a few kind of restful activities or and consider as well like um maybe you have some that could take up to kind of half an hour but you might have just a couple of minutes where you do some deep breathing or um, you do, like, I've started doing like tree pose and practicing like half moon because I'm so rubbish at it, but actually kind of balance work can be really helpful in stabilizing mood and calming yourself when you're feeling stressed as well. So just thinking, okay, look, where are these pockets of times in the day that I can do certain things and what might those activities look like? So it's not like, because I think uh, we speak about it all the time, like you talk yourself out of it because you've not got the most perfect amount of time to do it or, or the right amount of time to do it perfectly so you don't end up doing it at all yeah and having those small restful breaks is consistently building up your evidence that you can rest without binge eating so I just one the other day where I had my legs up on the wall 
and I was just lying on the ground and I thought oh I'll make a quick I'll, make, I'll take a video of this and I'll use it for a reel and I took a video on it and I was like because I wore my socks all the time in Austin I had no <laughs> and I had like white veiny clothy and then like brown <laughs> legs and I hadn't shaved my legs and then my trackies were up by my knees and I was like I, I can't like there's authenticity and then there's growth and it was like it was beyond that but having you know just that it, with that that point it was between calls and my mum just said this to me this shit because I've just been out I've got calls all day and I've just been out for a walk and it was literally just around the park so 15 minutes she said oh you're really good at that just taking taking the initiative and just going and planning and just getting it done um and I think it's important to create those little restful breaks so then at the end of the day you can be like I've had all these little restful breaks I didn't binge it's not rest that makes me binge um and of course you know the reason that you're binge eating when you rest is probably because of the discomfort with that and the potential for other feelings thoughts sensations to you know you're creating space for those things to arise and the way to manage that is to learn to build your just your tolerance of that distress and, and support your emotional regulation which of course you'll be doing with becca anyway and um, but that's often the reason that you'll binge eat with rest but it's not the problem is not with rest the problem is what you're creating space for when you do rest and a nice transition is not resting on the sofa but necessarily but resting with your crochet or your puzzle or whatever it is that you want to do and i just want to for the second part some examples of restful activities um like i would encourage the client to get curious like that see that as something exciting that you can you get to explore you get to discover what's restful for you like what's restful for someone might not work for another person so you know maybe it's journaling but maybe that's not for you maybe it's box breathing maybe it's a bit of yoga maybe it's a walk in nature just see if you can yeah get curious and get excited about finding out what is restful for you mm. I mean some people get rejuvenated from speaking to people and hanging out with people yeah. and socializing and it's what it's truly wild and I'm not <laughs> so you know yeah totally agree Okay, now my client's question for a rare occasion. Any advice to sit with mild discomfort in weight gain, knowing it's so beneficial for health and without just resorting to dressing like a bag? So I feel like I'm out of this question already. Um, I mean, oh, sorry, okay, you go. Sure. I, this is something that a friend actually taught me um, when she's struggling with weight gain, and it's almost a little bit of a somatic practice, is she, she sits there and she said she'll feel, you know, wherever it is, if it's her hands and her belly and, and different people will have different levels of comfort in, in doing this sort of self-touch. But she kind of sits there and she's like, this weight gain is, she reframes it. She's like, it's, this is pints with friends. This is good memories. This is, you know, nights going out for lovely dinners. And, and she thinks about all the positive things that she did that relate to that weight gain rather than just the shame of the weight gain and um, so that might be one idea yeah I, I remember when I stopped competing and again spoken with all the privilege of being in the small body and etc um but I remember when I stopped competing and I was one day lying on my sofa and it was the first time that I put my hand on my waist and I could like cup my belly in my hand and it was probably the first time I remember and I remember being like Imagine this was a man's hand. How nice would that feel? Again, heteronormative because I am, I like men, well, man. And I remember almost instantly reframing it as, although it's my own arm, I can, I would love it if it was someone else's arm and it would be soothing and it would be comforting. And I would love for them to feel like me as a soft human woman. And that, and that the idea of that was actually, I romanticised it. And so it went from me feeling that in my belly of like, oh, this is a body fat gain to romanticizing the idea of this is a way that someone could show me love and nurture me. And actually I can do that for myself. And it was almost instantaneous where I still love to this day to lie down and cut that bit of my belly. And I find it really like, I love it. It feels really like soothing. And so it's a similar sort of thing of just reframing it to what it might mean for you, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing to add, I'm afraid. The other thing I did say to her um, in our check-in was, it's okay to sometimes dress like a bag, you know? 
we kind of think, well, if I'm if I'm always wearing ba- like if you're always completely avoiding your body and avoiding mirrors and always wearing baggy clothes to avoid your body as opposed to preference, and that's maybe something to look at for sure. We don't want to fall into complete body avoidance, but if you feel bloated at certain times of the month, or if you feel uncomfortable, or you're maybe just struggling with your body image that day. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm going to wear my baggiest clothes and crack on my day. That's actually a sign of body image flexibility. It's a really strong thing. And so it's always useful to check in with, am I pathologizing this desire to want to wear baggy clothes? Um, or is it actually just a natural response to maybe just not feeling super comfortable today in my body and, and being okay with that? Because sometimes dressing like a bag is very freeing. Spoken with many years of experience. Uh, Anna. Can you get the same level of body connection from Pilates as you do yoga? I currently do one Pilates class and one reformer class a week, but wondering if yoga would help improve body connection further. I feel like great minds on the podcast for this question today. I don't mean my own, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I think with Pilates you can definitely definitely still build that body connection for me the difference is that like how how you frame the two so for me yoga is a little bit more of a it's a holistic practice it's just it's like a way of being I think in the western world we we're quite guilty of being like oh yoga is just going to a yoga class and being on the mat for 40 minutes and treating it like a workout um and I think that is more the intention behind Pilates is Pilates is a workout and a way to like build those those muscles in your core, whereas mm-hmm. yoga is a little bit more well-rounded and holistic. But it's it's a you can achieve mind-body connection in Pilates. It's just that yoga maybe supports you a little bit more um, broadly to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I I did a yoga class the other week and the teacher like does both and it was quite interesting because I didn't feel like I could connect with my body as much just from her kind of cues and when I think kind of of of, like the key differences in why I think it's more of a struggle I think you can get to a certain level but obviously like a couple of the principles with Pilates is precision and control So you have that level of body awareness for sure in making sure like the right parts of your body and your core's engaged. But I think for me, it's not as free and therefore you're kind of, sometimes it feels like there's a bit of resistance if your body doesn't want to do that thing. Like, yeah, you could do a a regression, but I I think like you were saying, Katie, because yoga is a bit more holistic, I think for me personally, it gets better body connection. I think sometimes too, just in the way that these classes and um, styles are even marketed and advertised, it depends on where you're doing your classes or your sessions. And Pilates is often advertised as a way to strengthen your core or a way to get long and lean or, you know, to start building muscle. Or and Whereas yoga is, if it's a good yoga class, it's not advertised as a way to change your body. And if you're doing yoga, quote unquote, correctly, which is just how your body shows up, it's not even about the way that you hold the pose. Not really. It's about just flowing and moving in your body. Whereas like you said, Anna, Pilates, you can do it wrong by not standing in the right position. But no one in yoga is ever going to come around and say, oh, you're not doing your downward dog right. Because it's about how the idea is that you feel into the movements and it's leg from the inside out and Pilates I don't know as much as about Pilates, but with Pilates, it is a lot more of a replication or, you know, doing the reps based on what you're supposed to do based on the orders. And I think I mean, there isn't as much research around Pilates, but obviously with yoga, we see associations with things like embodiment and reduced self-objectification and more positive body image. And um, it helps support developments in self-compassion and um these things are then further associated with things like body connection and and positive body image. So, um, again, there's there's definitely nothing wrong with it, um, but they're not. I wouldn't say that they were super comparable. In that sense. Katie, question. 
Okay, this is from Becca's client. Um, maybe during yoga or meditation, how to come back into your body. In the past, I give up on these practices because I can get so frustrated by my mind wandering off. I, just, I love that these are all tying in together. <laughs> I did it on purpose. Oh, it's just like a little, it is, it's just a wee confirmation from the universe. <laughs> you're doing things, you're just fine. Um, I I can't say this enough, and if anyone's ever heard me say this before, I apologise. Your mind wandering off is is normal. It's supposed to. It's almost supposed to happen. It's a natural human response, um, for your brain and your mind to chatter and these voices in your head to get louder when you quiet yourself down. When you quiet yourself down and slow down, that is when the voices feel like they are louder. Um, that is normal. And what's incredible about the practice of yoga and meditation is developing the skill of bringing your, yourself back to the present moment over and over again. That is building a strength in you. That's building, um, yeah, that's the, that's the intended outcome of these practices or one intended outcome of all of these practices. It's actually a really positive thing that you're aware. And the idea of it, especially with meditation, is that you are aware of your mind wandering and you're not getting lost in it. You're, com you're coming back to the present moment every single time. That means you're being mindful. You're mindful of the voices in your head. You're developing your mindfulness. The idea that meditation is about sitting and not and having a quiet mind is is ludicrous because nobody does. And I I used to get really annoyed with people when they'd be like, "My mind's just too busy to meditate." I'm like, "Right, Brenda, my mind's busy too. Like, you don't have more on than me. I am the martyr. I am the one that has the busiest schedule, not you." So. If you, it's just that reminder of it, it's just super normal. So it's, it's kind of supposed to happen. And I'd get curious about the frustration, the the saying that they get frustrated when the mind is wandering off. I wonder if that's something you can you can explore, like where where that frustration is coming from, what that feels like, what that looks like, what if you give yourself permission to as you say, let the mind wander off, accept that that's what you're supposed to do or accept that that's your body. It's it's doing it for a reason, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, Becca's client. Thoughts on keeping clothes that no longer fit. Am I just tormenting and punishing myself each time I open the wardrobe? Potentially. Potentially. And... I think obviously I don't know this client and I don't know the journey goal that they're working towards but ask yourself okay well how does seeing these clothes in my wardrobe make me feel and if it's not great which I know for me it wouldn't make me feel brilliant um I used to have a prep and an off-season wardrobe and that was yeah every time I saw my prep wardrobe I was like oh Oh. um and I think the the one thing it's not saying you need to entirely get rid but almost like out of sight out of mind and just pack them away somewhere for a bit if if that loss might be on the cards again in the future and obviously being yeah being mindful but also keep in mind like we've spoken about this before but styles change when bodies change and preferences as well so Again, are you just trying to cling on to who you were potentially and blocking yourself from kind of becoming who you're meant to be? I'm mindful it's one of Becca's clients too. So maybe if you're in HA recovery, um, maybe if you've come from a, a very lean place to the point where you were lean that you didn't even get a regular menstrual cycle, then really question do I want to be in a position where I no longer have a menstrual cycle again and if not how is keeping these clothes serving me because are they going to just serve as a reminder of that time that I didn't have a menstrual cycle but I was leaner and even if you've always got to be mindful of having fat loss on the card anyway with HA recovery of course in that you are more susceptible then to further HA if you regain your cycle and then lose it again um so I just would be very mindful of when did they fit you? I would be really concerned if I fit any of my clothes that I used to wear when I was on prep. 
that that would that would not be a good thing and yes and they might fit me one day but not probably not intentionally so just like what do they like you said Anna like what do they signify for you and is that really the health like a healthful place that you want to be Anna um top tips for getting back into habits slash routine when you feel you've fallen out of alignment with your goals or values for a short period of time I think we might have different answers to this um some people will like a week where they're super intentional and it's a case of okay for this one week I'm going to do everything 100% or close to 100% and then after this on the basis of knowing that after this you're aiming for 80% ish moving forwards but I think sometimes we're we are too hesitant to push ourselves and we kind of go oh well this week I'll just try and do meditation a couple of times I'll try and go to the gym and it becomes this big deal like this we make a mountain out of a molehill when literally a month ago we were going to the gym four days a week but because we've taken a, a, a short amount of time off, we're like, oh, I should ease myself back in gently. Maybe for some people, especially if you've got a really busy life, that might be the right thing for you. But for other people, actually just saying, okay, I used to go to the gym four times a week. I'm going to just go straight back into it just to prove to myself that I can I can do this and just be really accountable to it and just get it, kind of just get it done and be and give yourself evidence of it wasn't actually that hard you just had to get back in to do it and I think a mistake that we often do make is taking things too slow and they become a bigger thing than they actually are and sometimes you yeah just go for it for a week again this is not me saying push yourself really hard forevermore please take it in context yeah and and the other thing with those those habits that you're trying to get back into um I think I saw this um Amelia I think it was Emma who posted this on Instagram maybe and it was like having a goal that's okay the gold standard is that I'm gonna say uh, exercise and move my body five times a week this week but I'll be happy if I do it three times and you can have some flexibility in in the goals so that you're still setting habits you're still getting back to them you're having compassion but and you know you're still striving for that gold standard of what this is what I really want to achieve this week but I understand life gets in the way and at the end of the day you know three days of movement is better than no days of movement yeah we spoke about that at ifs last year actually i think um i was talking about it in business but in the sense of like having an attainable goal and then having like a i guess it wasn't i didn't call it a gold standard goal but that kind of top goal in the sense of it's really helpful for if you struggle with feelings of failure of you know just because you feel like you failed at reaching that top level goal you've still hit the goal like the attainable goal that you'd originally set so you still have succeeded um, even if you haven't quite reached your top goal yeah exactly because if you've got even just like a you're ticking every day you work out and the goal is to do it five days in a row but you've only done it four days in a row your brain is going to think well I haven't reached my goal when actually you've worked out four days in a row like that's a good mm. achievement oh it kill me off <laughs> just looking at the uh like falling out of alignment with goals or values and maybe that's something to have a think about in the sense that have your have your values changed entirely? Have some of them switched priority? Or perhaps have you based your values on what you think you should value and not necessarily what you actually do truly value? So maybe maybe a bit of reflection slash journaling. Hmm. is it me I think so I mean it is now so go well (laughs) um okay from Georgia's question what does being full feel like how to know when to stop eating at a meal I don't know what does feeling feel like feel feel like feel Wowzers. <laughs> I'm pleased to say that rest is needed. <laughs> my last <laughs> recorded session of the day. Um what what does being full feel like to you? Uh, when you're trying to reestablish your your awareness and your trust of your internal cues, it's often because you have ignored them maybe through diet culture or overeating or restriction for such a long time that you 
that you are then rebuilding your trust in these things. But 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 previously, what you've been doing is following shoots. You've been following external rules, macro targets, and actually, you know, fat loss, fat weight gain, whatever it may be, right? So you you it's it's understandable that you still feel this want and this need to feel safer within the construct of external rules or external expectations of what something should or should not look like or feel like one of the reasons at ETPHD that we have you work through hunger and fullness um, homeworks is to not for us to tell you, oh, you've reached fullness, congratulations, but for you to begin to get curious about, okay, well, what does stomach fullness feel like to me? Okay, if I drink 20 pints of water, I've got stomach fullness, but am I full and satiated? I'm going to say no, you might just feel a little bit sick but your stomach is full because it's volume full, right? We might ask you to eat different types of foods. We might ask you to eat high fiber foods, low fiber foods, high sugar foods, low sugar foods, etc. And ask you to get curious about, okay, well, do I feel stomach full? Do I feel volume full? And then also, do I feel satiated? Do I feel satisfied with this meal? And so generally, when you're looking at fullness, you're looking at a combination of all these things, right? Of stomach fullness to a level that feels comfortable to you of um, satisfaction i.e did food taste great usually that comes with a mix of macronutrients which will impact things like gastric emptying rate digestion rate etc which will impact feelings of fullness we'll ask you to be more mindful because that will impact feelings of fullness and and again like what that feels like to you doesn't really matter what it feels like for someone else it doesn't really matter what the tick box definition of fullness is if you feel, and I'm going to kind of flip this to, if you feel satisfied and if you feel satiated, then that's what it feels like for you. And so getting curious about it for yourself is more important than us saying, you know, it should feel like X or Y. Okay. I, George's question. I do home yoga sessions for convenience. I used to go to sessions, but it's difficult to find ones that fit with my schedule. Is it better to try to get to classes so that my postures and practice can be corrected and developed? What does the yoga teacher say? <laughs> I um, I think it's really interesting the way that question has been asked because I would say that that you know yoga isn't necessarily about having perfect postures that are that are corrected like yes you might there might be ways that you want to um, improve in certain poses but I think that you can do that work at home on your own I find that um, sometimes I just I just like to go to a class because I like to give up I, I just I like the idea of I don't know what's coming someone else can just lead me through this and I can completely surrender Whereas when you're at home in your own practice, sometimes I think that's a little bit more difficult to let go. But yeah, I think the the interesting thing to maybe journal on or reflect on a little bit here is um, why do you why do you think one is better than the other? They're just they're just different. Yeah, I can, I mean I completely agree, and I see this a lot with um, quote unquote fitness people, maybe bikini competitors. It probably would have been me if I was naturally more flexible than I am, but they often will they'll they'll recognize maybe that they're overtraining that they you know they do they could reduce their resistance training sessions and they'll take up yoga, and then two weeks later I'll see on on an Instagram reel them doing some obscene yoga routine where I just think yoga flow and I think how on earth is, how have you done that because they've they've then channeled this need to be doing into yoga and need to be progressing into yoga and as impressive as you know some of these um postures are it's not the it's I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it but it's not necessarily the purpose of yoga and but 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 I do I do want to create a bit of space for you know I like to go to classes some I, I'm the same as you Katie I like to go to classes I like to I like people to chant at me and to guide me and to not have to think and there's something magical about not being in the environment where you feel highly strong and hyper aroused all day and taking yourself out of that environment into a new space to be able to do things um but I also like to go to a, cl a class because I know I push myself a little bit more 
because I do want to, I do want to improve on my flexibility and I do want to improve on my postures. It's not my driving force. And I don't go to that many classes, not only maybe go to once a week max. Um, and I love home practice, but I do want to create space for saying, you know, it's okay if you do want to see improvements in that for sure. Um, but it's not a shoot. You don't have to, you don't need to see that. That's a personal preference. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Is ask the client what do they want out of their yoga practice. Yeah. Get that if you ask yourself that, then that might direct what you choose to do next. There's definitely a transition, I think, in terms of uh, what I see with people, what I've seen with myself, in terms of what you want out of yoga practice when you start versus as you've been practicing for a long time. And you know, again, often when you're coming from the fitness space, you just want to initially feel like you're doing something more restful for your body maybe you still want to get a workout so it's still about getting a workout it's just a different type of workout and you want to get better at it and you want to feel like you get a good sweat on and you love hot yoga and you love you know vinyasa and you and then over time you start to try out different types of yoga and by by the time you've been practicing for a while you're kind of like I like to do a wee restorative session with candles and you are the person that they say you can you can rest in child's pose if you want and you're already there like thanks mate and I when I when I'm in Austin they have an outdoor summer series at one of the yoga studios and it's outdoors um vinyasa class every Tuesday night or something and I really love it and it's an incredible space to do this huge 600 people collective yoga it's incredible but my feedback always after it when when my my boyfriend is always there for other reasons and he and I'm always like, mm, I loved it, but it's too it was too intense, it's too fast, it was too there's too much. I like it, it's not restorative enough. And I'm like, gosh, who even am I? But I definitely think you go through that transition and there's no shame in being wherever you're at with it. And some yogis will practice for years and years and years and still really want to progress. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I definitely think there's a, that phase. Um, mm-hmm. I remember when you started, Amelia, when I was getting you on Down Dog, you, I was like, oh, I'm enjoying my Hatha, Hatha phase. And you're like, I just did aerobic. <laughs> yeah, good old days. I've not done aerobic on Down Dog for a very long time. But yes, point proven. <laughs> um, who is it? Me. Is it? Oh, oh no, it is you. Sorry. God, Anna. Rude. Sorry. If I suddenly reduce the amount of steps I do from 20,000 to 12,000 a day, what will this look like for my body? I.e., will I gain weight? Or will the extra energy be used elsewhere, like for building muscle, digestion, heat, etc.? Okay, let's take a let's take a um step back and look at what causes you to gain weight in the first place. It's been in an energy surplus, right? So if moving from 20,000 steps to 12,000 steps a day removes you from being at maintenance or removes you from being in deficit and puts you into calorie surplus, then over time, it is likely that yes, you will gain weight. Yes. That being said, it will, yes, because realistically, things like, like building muscle requires energy, but it's a lot less energy than people think that it is so when you see people like bodybuilders old school bodybuilders not you know what you know not good prep coaches within that space um do but they will um do bulks and they'll go into you know a thousand calorie surpluses and it's just obscene the kind of extreme end of that that's unnecessary and realistically a couple of hundred calories a day will still put you in a surplus you will still gain weight but it will help to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Um, you can't just eat a couple of extra hundred calories a day and then that and all, all of that goes to muscle building or muscle protein synthesis. It's not that energy expensive. Um, it's just beneficial and helpful once you hit your protein targets to also make sure you're in a, a slight surplus. Again, not required. Um, your body's really good at doing things like maintaining its essential processes when you're in a deficit, which is why... Um, when you develop hypothalamic amenorrhea, for example, your period menstrual cycle has is quote unquote switched off or it's irregular because your body's preserving other things like your digestion to some degree and your your digestive processes, heat generation, etc. But of course, if you're very underweight or underweight, your heat regulation can be off too. 
usually that's because of your low body fat levels though as opposed to your body's um um not have enough energy to generate heat as much as it is just to do with your body composition so i think realistically you could still be this is a point too you could still be in an energy in an energy deficit even if you go from twenty thousand steps a day to twelve thousand steps a day and don't change anything else you could still be in a deficit if you're not eating enough calories so some people could if you're say somebody was on a fat loss journey for example and they dropped down if they were only eating a certain number of calories a day they would still continue to see fat loss it would just be slower um so their answer is obviously we don't know we don't know if you'll gain weight or lose weight what you probably find though is that your appetite will reduce your hunger levels will reduce and um you'll be less inclined to potentially overeat or just you'll be able to regulate your hunger a lot easier and your intake will probably match and as people get more and more intuitive what you see what we see in the research is we're pretty good at regulating our intake aside from if we have diets high in ultra processed foods we're not great at that but in general and we're pretty good at regulating our intake in terms of our hunger we see the same thing across our menstrual cycle too like during a luteal phase if we're not tracking most people will eat about 150 calories more um so we're pretty good at that but we just don't trust ourselves to do that and diet culture tells us we can't do that because they base it on the ultra processed food research which again we're not very good at regulating that we know that mm. i was thinking kind of what else might happen with you reducing steps and like you say kind of there might be the reduction in appetite but there also might be kind of improved sleep um and improve cognition because you're not burnt out from trying to achieve 20,000 steps. I mean, I don't know this person and whether 20,000 steps is just kind of what you do in a day at work, but I know for a lot of people, 20,000 is a lot and that would take them quite a lot of effort to fit it in. And maybe, like I said, because sleep might be impaired or you're feeling stressed, tired, that you're maybe reaching for, like you were saying, more kind of energy dense foods. And actually by lowering your steps, food choices might change because you feel more rested. I don't know if any of you guys have been in the situation, but don't you think it's wild? Like I, you, you, you're someone at some point in your life where you convince yourself, you genuinely believe yourself. I'm just someone that naturally does 20,000 steps a day. I'm not saying it's this client. I'm saying from personal experience and clients I've worked with in the past, I naturally do 20,000 steps a day. It's really easy for me. It's just, you know, seeing friends and my work and everything else. And then suddenly when you improve your relationship with food and your body image and everything else, you become naturally someone that does 10,000 steps a day. And it's like, oh, how did I become that person? It's because you you genuinely believe that you that, that you have to do those many steps or that's natural to you because you convince yourself of that because you've built a habit, of course, of going out for a really long walk in the morning and in the evening and at lunchtime and it's just quote unquote natural for you and it's it's often not it's just that this it's an extreme routine that you put in is it me is it me now i feel like it is (laughs) yeah i think it is you i think it is you um what advice can you give for someone staying patient while recovering from covid I've never known fatigue like it and it's a bit scary. I feel like I've lost control of my body because all my energy has disappeared seemingly overnight without knowing when I'll get better. Hmm. It must be difficult. I um, I remember when I had COVID and I had the same, I had a few months of like extreme fatigue Um, and it's, it's really hard to just to feel like you you won't get better but I, I do the one piece of advice I would give is that it seems like your body needs rest like if you have that fatigue you need the rest and that's how your body's going to heal its best so I would certainly listen to that even though I know how difficult that is mm. I think realistically if you're being quite um rational about this right 
your two options here are you get frustrated you have you go into negative self-talk you get self-critical you stress you ruminate you worry um you get anxious about what that might mean in the future now let's think about objectively what happens when we do all of those things in our body we create a stress response we reduce our recovery capacity we reduce our ability to be restful we impact our immune system our immune system dampens when we are stressed so that's one option your other option is to do your very best accept that it's tough but do your very best to practice acceptance of the situation honor your body's needs for rest like Katie said and think okay well what can I change from this situation I can change how I treat my body I can change the thoughts I can change the stories that I'm telling myself and change all of these things how what's that going to do to my recovery that anything that's going to benefit my recovery because I'm not going to have this physiological stress response in my body I'm going to have a much lower stress response in my body which is going to help my body fight off and recover so those are your two options and although it doesn't feel like a choice to um choose acceptance it's definitely a skill that you can develop and it's something that we work with ETPHD clients on a lot is acceptance of things that you can't control and it's really not easy and I was speaking to my sister uh, the other day about the, the Buddhist principle of pain is inevitable and suffering is a choice and it's very easy to say that it's a whole other thing to live it but I do believe it and sometimes we like to suffer because it feels familiar because maybe it's our way of getting attention because it occupies our brain rather than thinking about something else there are lots of reasons why we like suffering um as much as we might not admit it and so that's maybe something to get a little bit curious about because it is a practice and a skill that you can develop and there's a man called Mo Godak Godak Mm, he wrote a book about happiness and he has a couple of episodes with Elizabeth Day on the How to Fail podcast and sometimes I find some of what he says a little bit toxic positivity a little bit but he does talk a lot about this perspective and a lot of these Buddhist principles and he his story is that his son died at 21 years old I think in a routine surgery so completely routine and he has he talks about it in in an incredible way in terms of how he can almost see meaning in it and he talks about this pain and suffering and I think okay well people can do it people can choose pain over suffering and um again you have to find your space where it's not toxic positivity for you and I definitely don't recommend you know just suppressing any negative feelings or quote-unquote negative feelings that you have but I think there's a lot to be said for recognising it's a choice to some degree. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thanks, um, thanks for your questions. Thank you both so much. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.